Growing up in a, a small village in rural Spain, you know, where at the time I was born, we were like uh, about 120. And then these days we're hardly 50. This gave me a very strong feeling that, you know, we were some kind of like small civilization that we were about to be extinguished. And this was very much influenced, not just because I was witnessing, you know, how my village was dying, but also by the stories that my father was telling me about how other villages nearby they had already ended and we could also visit them and see the broken houses. We see, you know, how the fountains had no longer any water. The lands were abandoned. So I remember at the age of 16, when I moved to Madrid, you know, and the whole thing about being a pueblerina, you know, someone who comes from the province, someone who comes from a small village. And immediately I was facing this, you know, the whole stigma of not being normal, you know, consider myself normal until I realized that I was falling under some type of category that it was very unpleasant because immediately I had to deal with people having an understanding of me that it was not the way I felt, no? Just something that I started very in a very intuitive manner, you know, like learning about my position in the world just because of my origin, it started being the main drive of my artistic practice. From the very beginning, when I started working, you know, and producing, you know, artworks or ideas, they are pretty much all very much affected by this idea of regaining, you know, our voice in the world. So I just very early on started working with this idea that, uh, you know, like rural communities are places of knowledge production. And all of these things also were crossed by a lot of distorted ideas or, that have been also trying to represent the rural. So it's something that, yes, there has been a lot of people making images of us, you know, or we have been always a subject matter, you know, for anthropologists, for ethnographers, but I mean, when are we going to represent ourselves? Very soon, I, you know, started just like making work that it, they could highlight, uh, you know, this idea about the farmers and intellectuals and seeing how every time I will say it, it will generate some type of like not very positive reaction, you know, like everybody needed an explanation. And then later, you know, when I, when I moved to, to Egypt and I started working in the region and in Jordan and stuff, and I met the work of Munir. You know, I mean, the first thing that I heard from him uh, was the definition of the occupation of knowledge. And that was like such a, you know, gift in a way, because he explained everything, you know. So suddenly I started learning about, you know, his ideas about knowledge production and about the Mujawara and how everybody is like a, a source of knowledge. And then from, from there, through common friends, I learned about Pedro Sanz, you know, the cabanolista of the film. And when I met him immediately, he represented, you know, many of the things that I was also uh, working for. All of his learnings and his experience has been directly taken from his life as a shepherd. So the work that Pedro has been doing during his life is not different from the work that many scientists do in, in labs. But the thing is, Pedro's lab, which is, you know, the outside world, has no limits and loads of different information are continuously filtering in. He cannot remove it and he needs to contemplate everything. So he has learned to work with error. He's not understanding error as something that is up, uh, destroying his conclusions or rejecting, I mean, or erasing or anything. He's understanding error as part of his practice. That was Asuncion Molinos Gordo. I am Igor Ramirez, and this is Stage. You know, the best part of producing this podcast, at least for me, is learning. And this episode is dedicated precisely to that. 
Danny Burrows, our guest host, has brought together Palestinian learning theorist and practitioner Munir Faseh with his colleagues from Tagmi's Social Kitchen, Rifa Kui and Dina Batene. They underline one principle. Different sources of knowledge and wisdom are a way of fostering healing and wellness, both as individuals and as a community. I leave you now with Danny. Hi, I'm Danny Burrows, and it's my great pleasure to be hosting this podcast as part of TBA 21's program, Stage, an online production platform driven by a desire for change. Today, we begin and end with hope, the hope that flourishes when we live in the wisdom of abundance, rather than the narratives of scarcity too often imposed by our education. Together, we're going to journey through a series of personal stories that reflect on the power of learning together and embracing the diversity of knowledge within ourselves, each other, and this planet. In that spirit, I will tell you a little about me. My life revolves around food. Cooking it, growing it, talking about it, reading about it, and most importantly, sharing in the joy of eating it. My gluttonous curiosity about food is the lens through which I think about life. With a background in visual arts, what I find most satisfying about food is its democratizing power, particularly the often elitist framework of contemporary art. For me, food is a way of sharing, connecting, discovering, debating, embracing, and reimagining the complex stories of our lives. Appropriately, I first met Asunción Molinas Gordo over lunch at Delfina Foundation as part of the Politics of Food program that I've been leading since 2014. In our first encounter, we shared a common sense of struggle. Entering the unfamiliar territory of the art world as two uncultured country bumpkins, but with a serious passion to reveal, resist, and subvert the unjust, dominant hegemony of our times. It is a privilege to share the story of three speakers with you today, who are all consciously and actively engaged in the process of reclaiming learning as a way of healing. To quote our first speaker, Monia Fasse, the worst conquest is that of knowledge. It led to conquering diversity and pluralism in living by a modern superstition, the belief in a single universal path for knowing, learning and progressing. I want to talk about what I consider the worst virus that plagued humanity and entered our minds. A virus that wiped out learning as what characterizes humanity most and how it was replaced by education. And so our, our job, our challenge is how to regain learning as a characteristic of humanity or of humans more than anything else. Where did the virus come in? which is really very corruptive and very malicious. It was articulated by Comenius, who is considered the father of modern education, who said 400 years ago, people who learn without being taught are more like animals than men. So this statement that was accepted immediately by Britain, France, and Sweden, and all of them invited Comenius to go to their countries and establish education in accordance with that, which means education is the master and learning is just a servant to that master. So here is where I feel uh, learning 
is what we have to regain or reclaim as a biological ability. Now, how do we know it is a biological ability? Very simple. If we look at a child anywhere under any conditions, in any uh, culture, in any civilization, that child of three or four years, unless there is a physical disability, learns the language around him or around her easily, without being taught, without any curriculum, without measurement, without uh, anything. They perfect the language very creatively in which they live. And this is true about every child. And there is, regardless of the background, regardless of anything else, it is exactly by realizing that learning does not need teaching. And actually, teaching makes learning of math in that sense that is is not as good as when learning is not interrupted by teaching. So here, I would, just to, to make things clear, maybe we need teaching in things that are related to uh, technical matters, but not to life. If we connect learning to teaching in uh, living matters in life, we produce people who are disabled to learn. They are not able to learn. So this is where I feel that when I discovered that, and I was at the peak of my career in teaching mathematics, uh, that was in 1976. I was 35 years old. And I was in charge of teaching mathematics in all the schools of the West Bank. And at the same time, teaching mathematics at Bethlehem University and Birzeit University. And I was totally, really, like, got dizzy by the lies that I was given by universities and by the lies I was giving to my students that mathematics, the best kind of mathematics is that comes from teaching. Yes, when you want to, to produce a rocket, when you want to uh, produce a, a machine, but not when you want to understand life and living and understand, make your meanings uh, uh, more meaningful, your knowledge more relevant, and all of that that comes with it. I realized then that best learning happens in real Soils. Learning really needs soils to, in order to happen. And I mean by soils, the earth nature soil, the culture knowledge soil, the communal economic soil, and the soil that nurtures the heart and the soul. So my mathematics was not embedded in any soil other than the soil of control and winning and consumption and the dominant world of hegemony that really not only make these soils invisible, but destroys them, poisons them, make them unable to provide or or regenerate life, regenerate life that is in all these soils. So this is where I feel that soils are the basic ingredient in knowledge about life, and that was, and that were made invisible. All of this is really connected to a value, which I think is supreme value, wisdom. But wisdom in the minds of people 
is really related to wise men and old men and old women and all of that. So I use more than wisdom, I use wellness. In Arabic, wellness is afia. And afia is a word that is so used every day by people without sometimes or most of the time realizing that it is the main value that will will heal us from the dominant hegemonic ideologies. So these three, to me, are the essence of learning, and they are what I consider to be the vision that is available to all people, and, and no one needs a workshop or training to, to deal with them. Mujawara, where people get together, who want to be together, and there is no authority from within or from outside. So the Mujawara as the medium, wellness as the value, and the soils as what nurture us as human beings, as nature, as cultures, as communities, as civilizations. In 1967, there was the war, 1967, between Israel and Arab countries. And I was then 26 years old. I had a master's in mathematics, and I was teaching in Birzeit University. And I realized that the war came in, came and gone, and I didn't understand anything, why all what happened happened, and why what should have happened did not happen. So I uh, started really rebelling against the education that I got and that, that I was giving to my students. But I was not able to translate that rebellion into action until 1971. In 1971, I started with some friends in the West Bank, in Ramallah and Bire as, as a star, to really go every, th- every Friday and Sunday to places where they needed people to work, to do things in that community, and go, we go there and work. That lasted for 10 years, from 1971 to 1981. Now, where, where, what we really moved into is working with our hands, working with our legs, working with people in the communities, learning about the communities, learning about the refugee camps, learning about villages, learning about all all the knowledge that is there that is not considered part of the knowledge in schools and universities. So we really, for 10 years, with nonstop, we worked and we did not have uh, workshops, we did not have training, we did not have uh, uh, budget, we just worked with what we have. So I started looking at the roots. And to me, since 1971, what I started with is telling everybody they are a source of meaning. And they have to really practice that. For me, to tell people you are a source of meaning, you are a source of knowledge, you are a source of understanding, that was the secret of transforming their attitude towards knowledge. So I didn't tell them what is right and wrong or what, what, what they should believe in, what they should learn, and so on. I just said, you are a source and take that seriously. Up till now, this is the main message that I tell people. Because when they ask, for example, you are a co-author of meaning. Don't ever become or be or accept to be a consumer of meaning. You are a source of meaning. You are a co-author of meaning. Take that seriously because when you do that, then you are healed 
from the dominant and hegemonic uh, ideology. As Manur has reflected, we need vision. Not just vision as a goal for some point in the future, but something we can start today. Two visionary women whose work has pollinated and been pollinated by Manur's thinking, Arif Farouki and Dina Wetana, who together created and run Tagmish, a social kitchen project. The meaning of termis is actually it's multi-layered. It's the act of termis in Arabic is, is the act of dipping, the act of using a piece of bread to, to dip into food. And that act of dipping is called termis. And each plate itself is a, a plate of termis. And termis means to actually immerse, to immerse in, in a moment, in a, in a conversation, in, in an act of, of anything that you're doing to be completely present in that doing and to be completely a part of it and to lose yourself in it and and to to become a part of the whole the act the plate the conversation the people everything around you and the idea of a social kitchen uh, was something that we uh, we came together and we put a meaning for that usually we have the kitchen and the kitchen is the place where people gather together it's the place where people enjoy their time. It's the place where you feel um, uh, most connected to in the house. It's a place where it brings people together. So basically, termis is the social kitchen. It's just like when we know the ingredients and the resources of everything around us. And the same with our thoughts. We want to know the source of our thoughts, where it comes from, why we're thinking the way we're thinking. And just like how this knowledge was put in our head and the same as our food, our food, why we're eating this. So it's basically comes with the idea of questioning things. That's why we say like, it's a, it's a social kitchen. Uh, so basically it was in 2011 during uh, what most people call the Arab Spring and feeling like there was a lot of movement. And regardless of, of what happened on the ground, I feel like uh, a lot of like the, the greatest movement happened within people, within people like us, feeling like, like we were sleeping and then suddenly, like, the ground shook and, and we woke up. And we looked around ourselves and, and seeing that uh, we, we had been working in an NGO, recognizing for the first time that we were pretty much just living in an illusion of, of actually doing good rather than actually doing anything significant, really. So the, the Arab Spring was an awakening. And for us here in Jordan, uh, it came around the same time as... Uh, a government plan to build a military base in, in the forest in the north of, of Jordan. So they had been planning to cut down over 2,000 trees uh, in a lush forest that had like was logically intact. And realistically, if you know anything about Jordan, it's mostly desert. There's less than 1.5% of uh, forests in Jordan. So this act was something that just, just couldn't, couldn't sit like... Uh, well within us as people and and the the uprisings all around the arab world inspired us to also speak speak out for ourselves speak out for the forests and, and try to put a stop to it and we were working in an environmental organization at the time so it it made sense that the institution would be the first to rise up against such a, a violation uh, but we found that within our organization our hands were tied 
because we're an NGO and NGOs here are connected to the government actually. So in the ministry, so there's not much space to actually defy anything that's happening from government sanctions kind of actions. So uh, we actually found that the only way that we could move forward was by coming together with people within the community who felt like they felt the same kind of outrage about what was happening and the same kind of desire to actually stop it and, and say something about it, put a pause on the project and, and to stop the building of this military base. And that inspired us to, to actually see that the power doesn't lie within institutions as much as it lies within people. And to start to learn from that experience, it made us question all of the things that we've known and all of the education that we had been placed within, within us to make us feel that, you know, institutions could make a difference. Whereas in reality, it was just, they were just another way of, of numbing us from coming together and actually making a difference as people within community. So basically, this energized us. And we were talking about hope. It was a source of hope that, um, that we're able to do things which goes against the idea of how we're taught that we need to be under the umbrella of a, an institution in order to be able to, to make some action. <laughs> things escalated and we started Tamis because this opened the doors for more questions. Maybe I can talk more here more about my personal story with Tamis. It was an explosion that happened inside of me. I went through a serious phase of, of depression, of not knowing what to do or how to think. So in Termis, we decided like, okay, we want to create different activities and different engagements that we would be engaged with. It's not like for people, for other people, no. It's just like, as we're saying, like, it's us. Maybe just a, an idea of giving a sense of what Termis is, that, that Termis is, is a medium for learning basically, again, outside of institutions, outside of education. And uh, it's a place of, of using personal stories that from their own experiences, our lives. And um, again, trying to uh, share these things um, around food to, again, start to reflect on all of the things that have occurred in each of us. Again, uh, trying to place value in the experiences of people and not just in the, the degrees that they hold. So it's, uh, it's very interesting that we, we never try, we never share our credentials in these spaces. The, the majority of people that we ask is for people to share their name and for them to, um, to and we base these conversations around questions. So each person uh, is free to basically use a story to, and to frame the answer to their questions. And these stories come from their own experiences. And again, it's the idea that each person is an expert in their lives and in their experience. And nobody has the authority to question your life or experience or your story. So each person ha is, has that place of, of, I don't like the word empowerment, but it is this, this sense of being empowered to, to share their own narrative and to give value to their own narrative. And to remember that our lives are a source of of learning, there are a source of knowledge, and to stop being so disconnected because we we always learn that there is a right answer and there's a wrong answer, and we're always looking for that uh, that right answer. But once we share these stories and and everybody gets to share uh, and hear how there are different worlds, there are different experiences, 
we get to appreciate the diversity that exists out there. And we get to appreciate how what might separate us because of, of stereotypes or preconceived notions about what is different than us actually falls uh, and it fails to, to have any kind of uh, place in, in the way that you perceive the world any further because because you know that that difference is beautiful and it's okay I mean, not to be afraid of, of your own difference also and, and of allowing yourself to, to give value again to everything that exists within your world. Because I think shame is, is something that we, we grow up with a lot, uh, especially in the Arab world. And um, even, even to, be, to feel like we, we need to, to look different, to, be, to speak a different language, to, to walk uh, in, in, in another's shoes to actually have value. But in reality, um, there's a lot of value within each of us. If we were saying that Tarmis is a medium of learning and producing, <laughs> one of the things that was important for this knowledge to be produced is going back to the words we use and the power of words that we use. So maybe uh, if I think about how we started to, to walk the path of Tarmis, it came from this place of, again, questioning our own knowledge and our own education and how our instinct became uh, just something that's been manufactured, something that's been like kind of instilled into us rather than that something that was rooted in us or came from us like from a, a rooted place. Because the more that we followed the path of, of the dominant path of, yes, we go to finish our education, we go on to higher education, we get these jobs, we, we continue to work within the machine. The further away, personally, I felt from the things that had value in life, my relationships with my family, with, with my friends, with just being connected to, to things around us and around me. And I think a big part of it was, okay, so how do we walk a different path? So working against this kind of dominant or common sense that we had, rather than looking at things in the sense of scarcity as the way that we're taught to think that always, yes, we have a scarcity of resources there. There's always, we have to wait for, for funding to be able to do anything. We have to, we need more um, know-how from external know-how to come in and, and help us do things. We started to look at the idea of, of abundance and how, what exists around us and what we can do with it. And we have a, a saying in Arabic, uh, which is uh, you make good with what is there. And that was it. That's how we started to build Tarmis. We started to look around us and see what was there and to start putting it together uh, as, as different ingredients within the recipe of, of our social kitchen, of our gatherings, of our engagements. Thank you, Dina and Reef, for sharing this invaluable emancipatory paradigm of social learning. So now we reach the end of this little journey together. I hope you've enjoyed hearing these stories. And like me, they've gifted you with a reminder that you yourself and all the beings around you are sources of knowledge. As another great woman of our times, Vedana Shiva has stated, cultivating and conserving diversity is no luxury in our times. It is a survival imperative. So I hope what we've shared with you today offers a window of hope hope for a future that is too often painted with a veil of precarity. It is an offering of understanding that the wisdom and healing required is abundantly contained within each of us. It is just waiting to be shared. 
Today's artist was Asuncion Molinos Gordo. Our guest journalist was Danny Burrows. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tva21.org. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Surroth is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutierrez is our content curator. John Aranguren is our curatorial assistant. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramirez. Nina Speranda is our project manager. This episode was edited by Ana Esteve. And our theme music is by Carmichael von Hauswolf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>